Warning, this episode contains spoilers and strong language. Everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Masters of Carpentry, a John Carpenter fan cast or a podcast where we fan out about your favorite director and ours. Not really John Carpenter. Well, he might be my favorite director, but I'm not speaking for anyone else. I am joined this wonderful evening by my co-hosts, Julia. What up? Noel. Are you sure this isn't the show where we pot about fanning? <laughs> And our very special guest, Melissa Kirscher. Melissa, please introduce yourself once again. I am Melissa Kirscher, and I am queen of the lizard people. I also occasionally color and letter comic books. I'm on other podcasts and stuff like that. I'm guessing that this is a film that might be popular among your loyal subjects. Yes, I have a very special connection to They Live. (laughs) My loyal subjects have taken many lessons from this film, yes. Obey. Obey. Marry and reproduce. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't we just go ahead and ask, what is your prior history with They Live? Oh, goodness. I saw this film probably in the early 2000s, so I caught up with it rather late. I think I first saw it when I went through all of the films of John Carpenter and watched them all in order, because that was a thing I was doing at the time. It was one of those movies I stumbled upon. It's like, why haven't I seen this before? I really love this movie. I really enjoy this movie. I adore this movie. There are so many things I adore about it. It's the mix of horror and sci-fi and comedy and that late 80s pessimism. You know, it's great. I love it. I am all about this movie. I am very happy tonight. (laughs) I wonder if she's going to recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. Spoilers. Alex, what's your prior history with the movie? This video, because I am old, uh, was a VHS cassette that came from, I think, in the early 2000s as well, from the same video store I got the thing from. Shout out to Suspect Video, hipster mecca in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, This is the second time I've ever watched it, so not much of a history with it. And Julia, have you ever seen this movie before? I have not, nor had I ever heard of it or knew what it was before Alex pressed play. Oh, wow. Best way to go into it. (laughs) I know that I've seen this film at least once, maybe twice, back in the 90s. I got it in a box set where it was this and Prince of Darkness together on VHS. And I have a lot of memories about this movie, but upon rewatching it, I realized that most of those are wrong. (laughs) Oh my. It's like I remember all the pieces, just not all the details of how they went together. So it was very interesting to rediscover it. Interesting. So let's clear this up. Am I correct in thinking I am much older than all of y'all? Because I am 40 right now. I'm 33. I'm 14. Okay. I turned 17 (laughs) in 17 days. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm I'm not going to give my age. I'm up there. I'm up there. I'm heading toward my uh, dirty 40s. Oh, okay. Okay. All right, cool. I think they get extra dirty. That's right. I'm not the only person who lived through Reaganomics here. No, no. I caught a bit of the tail end of it. Okay. Okay. That's good. I think I was there in spirit. (laughs) Oh man. Nostalgia. I was what, 13 when this movie actually came out. So I remember this era well. 
And I think that's very key to understanding what this movie is all about. What year is this movie again? 88. 88? Okay. <laughs> so I'm probably between eight and nine. They Live was directed by John Carpenter, who also wrote the screenplay under the name Frank Armitage and co-composed the score, his eighth in collaboration with Alan Howarth. It's based on a short story, Eight O'Clock in the Morning by Ray Nelson. And Melissa, I know you also read the story. I did. I read it last night and I really liked it. Following Prince of Darkness, this is the second in a two-picture deal Carpenter made with Alive Films and executive producers Andre Blay and Shep Gordon, all of whom I detailed in the last episode, so I won't get into it again here, and they'll again work with Carpenter when we get to Village of the Damned. This is Carpenter's eighth and final film with producer Larry J. Franco, who again served as first assistant director and also appears in the film as the kind of hefty guy in the open Hawaiian shirt who lives across the door from the character Meg Foster plays. Is he the guy you thought was the wrestler? Was he the guy who comes out and scoffs or was he the guy who was already in the balcony? He's the guy who's already there who appears to be living with the guy who comes out and scoffs. Okay, got it. I thought he was Captain Lou Albano. <laughs> yeah, Alex thought he was a wrestler. <laughs> Nope, that's Larry Franco, who took over as Carpenter's producing partner after Deborah Hill left. And Franco's been with him for a long time, started as a production assistant. Again, he's been the first assistant director on all these films that he did with Carpenter. And again, this is the last film they worked on together. And following this, Larry would go on to produce Tango and Cash, The Rocketeer, Jumanji, Jurassic Park 3, Hulk, Batman Begins. He had a run with Tim Burton where he did Batman Returns, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow. And lately, he's been working with Roland Emmerich on 2012 Anonymous and White House Down. That is a heck of a pedigree. Quite the career. This is the fourth film for script supervisor Sandy King, and her first as associate producer. And with Larry Franco's departure, she is going to quickly become John Carpenter's main production partner. And she's also two years away from marrying John Carpenter. And he will return, but this is shockingly the first film since Halloween to not include boom operator Joe Brennan. After a straight run of 10 films, Joe is gone. <laughs> His arms were tired. <laughs> Give the man a break. <laughs> the budget for the film was only $4 million. It was released on November 4th, 1988, and was number one at the box office that week. And this was John Carpenter's first number one film in quite some time. And the film that it knocked out of the number one slot, which dropped to number five, Halloween 4. Oh my god, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> By the second week, Child's Play and Earn a Save Christmas bump, they lived down to number four. Then Land Before Time came out, dropping it to number 13. And over the next couple of weeks, Scrooged and Naked Gun came out, dropping They Live out of the top 20. In the end, it grossed just over 13 million. Well, it had a budget of 3 million, though, so... That's not bad. It's not bad. No, that's over three times its budget. I was one of the people giving Land Before Time money. <laughs> And Scrooge. Yeah. Scrooge was fun. I love Scrooge. There's something special about Carol Kane with a toaster. A man named Nada drifts into the city looking for work, but times are tough for the lower class. As jobs have dried up and homeless shanty towns expand as the rich keep getting richer and people keep getting lost in the drone of consumerist advertising. Stumbling across some form of underground movement and witnessing a brutal police raid of the shanty town where he was staying, Nada comes in possession of a box of sunglasses. Putting them on, he sees the world as it really is, a populace hypnotized into apathy and obedience by constant signals and subliminal messages, unaware that the upper class living in their midst are aliens who quietly conquered us long ago. Nada initially lashes out at the truth, brutally killing aliens in public after he runs out of bubblegum, <laughs> then is forced to go on the run. 
Along the way, he meets two people, Frank, another laborer on hard times who's desperate to keep his head down and not stir up any trouble, to the point where Nada has to beat him into donning the glasses, and Holly, a wealthy woman who initially betrays Nada, only to meet up with him again when he reunites with the underground movement which is using the glasses to try and spread the truth. When the underground is again raided, Nada and Frank find themselves teleported into the main headquarters of the aliens, a television station, where they see a meeting of human sympathizers working with the aliens and learn just how thoroughly we've been infiltrated. Holly turns traitor, killing Frank, and Nada is forced to take her down before sacrificing himself in a hail of gunfire as he destroys the transmission dish, finally revealing to the public who's been living among them. So Melissa, I think you tipped your hand a little bit earlier. Do you recommend this movie? Yes, I do. <laughs> I find this movie to be a tremendous amount of fun. It's at this nexus of horror and sci-fi and comedy. It's a particular tone that I am a very big fan of, and it's right at that sweet spot. And also, I like Roddy Roddy Piper. I really do. I find him to be a charming leading man. Not a tremendously great actor, but he certainly is more at ease on the screen than a lot of professional actors <laughs> of this era. Alex, do you recommend this movie? Yes, I 100% recommend this movie. I was a little on the fence, not really on the fence at first, because it's not as sharp or as fun as Big Trouble in Little China. Like, I find a lot of it is ham-fisted, but there came to be a certain point when there were two grown men who were beating the hell out of each other <laughs> for 10 minutes who had deconstructed an action sequence to the point where it was just two people snarling like rabid dogs <laughs> on the ground together. And I fell in love with the movie. The legendary scene of this film is that fist fight. Of course. Julia, do you recommend this movie? I didn't know anything about it. As I said, Alex was very excited that I'd never heard of it because <laughs> I was like, well, what's this one about then? And he's like, you don't know. I'm like, no, I don't know anything. And he actually That's right. <laughs> comically rubbed his hands together and <laughs> laughed with glee <laughs> and sat there and kept looking back at me every three <laughs> minutes <laughs> because it's a very slow, <laughs> slow to come to what's actually going on. I most definitely recommend it. I loved 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 it. I'm interested to know what you thought was going on for the first 20 minutes or so. Because I tried to take that stance when I watched it this time of it was so long ago when I first saw it that I don't recall what I thought was going on until it actually happened in front of me. And it seems to me like there's some nice misdirection in the early scenes. And then all of a sudden, you're kind of slapped in the face with, oh, my God, aliens. <laughs> I knew something was going to go on because it's a Jordan Carpenter movie and I've been mm -hmm. here before. Mm -hmm. But like not exactly. I'm like, is it aliens? Is it demons? <laughs> <laughs> it's like watching an episode of Buffy where you're like, demon witch spell. Which one's it going to be? <laughs> Let's wait and find out. And I actually was really enjoying it. I really liked the pacing of it. And I liked that it was slow to come to. I knew something was going on when the cops came and raided the church because I'm like, wow, those cops are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like they don't just come in and raid and then they're just like running behind the cars and they come with the bulldozer and I'm like, hmm, 
I'm going with Alien Takeover. Alex, I'm going with Alien Takeover. <laughs> I know. And then I didn't know at all what was going on until he put the sunglasses on. And then I was like, okay, confirmed. Yes. And then I was just filled with glee because mm. it was like the best episode of Twilight Zone ever. <laughs> <laughs> and everything that I want an episode of Twilight Zone when you put it on to be instead of just being a little bit disappointed that something wasn't really thought through. <laughs> but <laughs> this was and I thought it was super fun and I definitely recommend it and everyone should watch it. If you are watching a Twilight Zone episode and you're like, hmm, I wonder what this would be like mixed with Commando. <laughs> You have your answer. <laughs> I really do love how that black and white is used. Yeah. Yes. That actually made those moments remind me a lot of the old 50s sci-fi films that I know Carpenter's a fan of. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure it helped cover up some of the makeup effects as well. Yeah. And the black and white is a very clear delineation of sunglasses on, sunglasses off. And it also makes clear they're not normal sunglasses because you can still see color through normal sunglasses. But it's also the 50s in that you suddenly have like stop motion flying saucers zipping around. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so much fun. (laughs) I also recommend it. I love this movie. What I meant by my memory being off was my memory was that the whole thing where he puts on the sunglasses and goes to the bank and dukes it out with Keith David in the alleyway, that that was all in the first 20 minutes of the movie. And then the rest of the movie just suddenly slowed down and just kind of became this quiet, dreary action movie as he wanders the shanty town and the police raids and all that stuff. So my memory of where things were placed was completely off. Oh my. The point where he puts the sunglasses on, half an hour in. Mm -hmm. And then the fight scene is at the hour mark. So all this great stuff that I thought was just a sluggish second half of the movie is actually a lot of great tension that's building between those scenes. I did take note of the timestamp on my DVD. It was 40 minutes. That's when the punching starts. When he first punches a cop, that's like punching happens at 40 minutes. So you you have 40 minutes of Roddy Roddy Piper on screen without anything wrestling related happening. And then punching starts. He does not get rowdy for half the movie. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many great silent stretches of the film where he's just walking around, taking things in, reacting to stuff. He's very zen. Very zen. It's like a spiritual kind of sibling to uh, Patrick Swayze in Point Break. He's just very like, go with the flow, man. And he successfully go with the flow. I thought he did a terrific job. I think this is also the closest Carpenter ever came to doing a straight Western. Yeah. I could see that, yeah. I mean, we got a bit of that with Snake Plissken and with Jack from Big Trouble in Little China. But this is a character who is literally a man with no name. Nada, yeah. Just wandering around, taking in the situation before stirring everything up. I love that Piper is such a great everyman. Yeah. He really is. He just kind of goes with the flow, and he's got this just really subtle quality about him. And yet, this is a film that's not afraid to be very stylized, so when it comes time for him to step up and deliver all of these bizarro action hook lines... Get set to sweat. (laughs) Most of which came from his brain, including the famous bubblegum line. Oh my god, I love that stuff so much. Half of his lines make... Absolutely no sense. And I really appreciated them because I just sat up and I'm like, what did he say? (laughs) (laughs) He said that her face got stuck in the cheese fondue last year in the party. (laughs) (laughs) Or the one I really like is life's a bitch. She's back in heat. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't make a lick of sense. And it was fantastic. (laughs) The final shootout gets set to sweat. (laughs) Oh, God. Beat your feet. It's like film noir gone wrong. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the weird things about the film are these tonal shifts where it's very quiet, very observant, very contemplative, and then it just suddenly goes bonkers for a while. Mm-hmm. And then it'll go right back to the quietness and then mix it with action. And I think Carpenter is one of the few filmmakers who can really juggle a tone like that. Mm-hmm. My memory was that the pacing was wildly off, but I actually really love how deliberate and intelligent it is here. I love the pacing of it because when the little shots of adrenaline come, it's incredibly unexpected. Like when he gets thrown out the window down the hill, I was like, bravo. <laughs> bravo movie. I mean, even when he first puts the glasses on. Oh, yeah. We get several minutes of him just looking around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. He's like, why does the sidewalk have no color? And then what's that thing in the sky? And then what are all these billboards? And then what are all these magazines on the news rack? And then, oh, look, an alien. Why did that alien need to buy the Obey paper? <laughs> I was wondering that. It's just part of his cover. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I get the impression that there's actually content in the magazine and that the subliminal messaging is just printed underneath it. I like how aggro he was with this gigantic man who was wearing sunglasses so he could very well not be making eye contact. But that like six-year-old man was like, what's your problem? What are you looking at? I'm going to start something with this super muscular, this scary looking man on the street who may or may not be looking at me for no particular reason. That's a very LA thing, really. <laughs> <laughs> what you looking at? What you looking at? What are you looking at? Oh, God. And then he's doing this all with one of the most glorious full-on mullets I've ever seen. Yes. Although I don't know if that's a full-on mullet. That's more like the Duran Duran pompadour sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's like more, a shapeless shag. It's more of a feathered. Feathered? It's yeah. Feathered. 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 Yeah. Either way, it looks great on him. Yeah. Yeah. It does look good. He it rocks it, man. <laughs> I have no problems with Rowdy Roddy Piper in this movie whatsoever. <laughs> it was such a treat having the new Blu-ray, which had a Roddy Piper and John Carpenter commentary track. Oh. Yeah. Oh, was it a great thing to listen to. And the two of them are just still so proud of this movie and so excited about talking about this movie. Oh, I need to listen to that. Oh, we should uh, sing some praises of Keith David. Keith David is a god. Ah, oh, he's fantastic. We've seen him before in The Thing and, you know, many other things. And we've heard him many times before. Oh, what I would give for a voice like that. Oh, when you're good enough to play Goliath in Gargoyles, you know, you know you've got the voice. <laughs> That was a great comment by Roddy was he guided me through the acting and I guided him through the action. And the two of them worked really hard in choreographing that alley fight. That fight is brilliant. One for the ages. Keith David had never done a fight scene before. Oh my God. That is probably the best fist fight ever put on film. Honestly. At least in my estimation, because so many times you see violence and it's either glorified sort of dance sort of thing, or very rarely it's something that you actually get kind of a gut reaction to. It's like, oh, that's violence and that would actually hurt. And this, the fact that they have space in that fight scene to just fall over and lay on the ground and pant <laughs> and crawl there's not as much punching as there is reaction to the punching. Yeah, just a lot of grappling and rumbling and tumbling. Yeah. Sizing each other up. And what I especially love is that it's not a fight between enemies, it's a fight between friends. Yeah. You know, that point when uh, Piper just grins... <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the fight continues. It's just brilliant. And I love you get to the points where the body slam happens and you just go, oh, oh, God, mm -hmm. no, that would hurt. Not on asphalt. No. 
And what I love is that this is every bit as touching of a romance story as John Carpenter's Starman. <laughs> yeah. Complete with having this major sex scene. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, tell me that's not what's going on here. <laughs> and, and getting a hotel room. <laughs> and getting a hotel room, yes. I love that scene so much. The immediate scene after it is they both, they just mm-hmm. kind of creakily walking, just going, ow, ow, ow. And they get to the hotel. You can tell their faces are swollen up and they're bleeding. And it's like, give me a hotel room. Okay. I mean, in all seriousness, one of the things that Carpenter's always excelled at is the strong relationships that are formed between men. I mean, we had that with Jack and Wang in Big Trouble with China you know, the various relationships that Snake Plissken forms. And this reminds me so much of the relationship that is formed in Assault on Precinct 13. Except the assault is worldwide. Oh, it's gone global. (laughs) And then we have an interesting reversal in that Assault on Precinct 13 and Prince of Darkness, the street people are this kind of almost faceless, voiceless evil. Whereas in this film... They are the heroes. They are the underdogs fighting the authoritarian regime. Yeah. Yeah, this is John Carpenter as a social justice warrior resplendent. I find that he (laughs) uh, redeems a lot of themes from his past work by coming out as like a very leftist, very outspoken kind of guy. Like, I know that it's not insanely deep what they're saying, but they're talking about the gap in like poverty, racism. He's talking about a lot of very important issues that were important there and a lot of imagery that is still very prescient today, unfortunately, just like what's going on in America. And uh, yeah, turn on your internet machine, you'll see the same stuff going on. Yeah, and I know that this is one of the things that really drew Roddy Piper to the project is he himself spent part of his life homeless and just kind of wandering around, drifting from job to job, even from country to country. He spends time in Australia. It was really important to him to just kind of explore that angle. And then also on the commentary, John Carpenter makes no bones that he hated Ronald Reagan. Oh, yeah. Those were a lot of feelings that were just really raw and burning with him at the time. And this reminds me a lot of those films that came out like four or five years after 9-11, when there was suddenly this whole pushback to that whole pro-America rah-rah-rah. Mm-hmm. You know, like Southland Tales or W or stuff like that. It has that very kind of raw in the moment. We're still under that presidency. We've had a little time to reflect and to know that we don't like this, but we're still under it. Yeah, Reagan was on his way out. I mean, this was 1988. This was the last year of his presidency. And oh boy, were we ready to see him go. (laughs) (laughs) This is definitely the type of film that comes out before an election season. Yeah. Especially after a long run of multiple terms. And, you know, especially since Black Monday was October 19th, 1987. So there was that shock to the economy. This was during the the long drawn out years of Detroit being a third world country. It was interesting hearing Denver mentioned as a spot of poverty, because how often do you hear Denver (laughs) mentioned as a spot of poverty? I mean, I remember even being in Minneapolis. Minneapolis was really kind of rough in the late 80s and especially the early 90s. I mean, we were called Murderopolis for a while, and rightly so. I mean, I think it peaked in 1985, but boy, you know, late 80s to the mid-90s, not, not kind to Minneapolis. It's gotten a lot better. 
But I mean, beyond that, all throughout the 80s, there was this stream of commercialization. I mean, the 1980s were a monument to artifice (laughs) and slick entertainment and commercialization. It was like the opposite of the 1970s. And so They Live is taking on both of those things. You've got the propaganda laying over the reality of people having a genuinely rough time in this tough economy. And I mean, this was after eight years of massive debt accumulation by the country, too. So I mean, there was that gap between the have and have nots was widening once again. It's all about that. And the fetishization of violence we had in films of that era. So I mean, you get the spots in this movie where kind of as the opposite of that wonderful fist fight, you've got, let's spray bullets all over the place. And it's okay, they're aliens. (laughs) An interesting companion piece to this movie is actually Alien Nation, which came out in the same year. I still need to see that one. Oh, you should. It's a really solid piece of sci-fi, and it's sad that people don't really know it today. This does also remind me a lot of District 9. Oh, yes. Fantastic movie. District 9 is also very tied to the when and where it was made. Another thing I was thinking about, this movie inspired Shepard Ferry and his Obey campaign. The graffiti campaign featuring the face of Andre the Giant with the word Obey underneath it. Yeah, I actually just saw an interview recently where John Carpenter was asked about that. He said, it was clever. I wish I'd gotten paid for it. (laughs) (laughs) That's all he cares about. Yeah, dear listeners, if you've never seen Exit Through the Gift Shop, that's an interesting film to watch, too, because it delves into the story of a lot of graffiti artists from the 1980s onwards. It's about other things as well, and you know, specifically the search for Banksy. But there's a section of the movie that goes into the story of Shepard Fairey and his whole Obey campaign and his methods and all that stuff. It's interesting stuff. Yeah, and as with Prince of Darkness, this was another one of those films where I was kind of down on the cinematography by my memory of it. But again, that's because I had only watched the pan and scan VHS. Just watching it here, I think it's a very, very well crisply shot movie. Absolutely equal to some of the best stuff that Carpenter had ever done. Even the introduction with the um, placement of the graffiti as the title sequence. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. And I love how candy colored the movie is. It's mostly in daylight. I was kind of frustrated when I went to the video store this afternoon to rent the movie because they had it in horror. I'm going, this is not a horror movie. This does not play like a horror movie. This is a sci-fi film or an action film. I I still don't believe it's a horror film. But I I mean, part of that is because everything is so plain as day. There's nothing hidden, really. I mean, once you put the sunglasses on, you definitely can see everything. But it's not meant to be scary. It's a sci-fi film. Yeah, it's totally sci-fi action. Yeah. Like Free Jack. Yeah, it's social commentary with commercial edge. Oh, this is a hell of a lot better than Free Jack. <laughs> <laughs> is that Emilio? That's Emilio Estevez and Mick Jagger. Oh, boy. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in a million oh, years. Oh, man. Can I make another admission? Go for it. I had more of an emotional response to They Live than Starman. Mm. I'm not entirely surprised by that because I remember you guys weren't as into Starman as I was. Julia liked it more, yeah. It was just a simple thing. Sometimes the simple things get you. I almost teared up when he's running away from the shantytown invasion and he sees this guy, this young guy, cowering in the corner and he just stops and looks him for a second and then just slowly offers his hand to the guy to get him out of there. I'm just like, you go. The binocular kid? You go, Nada. Yeah, Yeah, the binocular kid. That was good. Yeah. That was real good. Yeah. Great moment. Oh, hey, we should bring up Meg Foster. She was Evil Lynn. Yes. Evil Lynn. 
And what I really know her from is the 80s adaptation of The Scarlet Letter, which we watched in grade school. Oh my. She was also in a glorious Rucker Hauer film called Blind Fury, which was yes. a, a kind of ill-advised remake of Zatuichi. <laughs> yeah. Oh my. But yeah, she was evil in, in the Masters in the Universe movie, and her eyes just kind of make her look perpetually stoned. Yeah. But those are our eyes, and apparently she comes from a Shakespearean background. She's a big theater actress. Here, I just kind of feel like she's kind of wooden. Yeah, she doesn't have much to do. Yeah, which is really unfortunate. It's also weird because Carpenter is so great, usually, at, at his female characters. Right. But granted, a lot of the romance is with Keith David. <laughs> But, I mean, she does have that nice turnabout at the end. Double turnabout. Yeah, the double turnabout. It's pretty amazing. But other than that, she's in like four scenes and that's about it. I thought she did fine in the beginning. I liked the way that she was playing it when she was being kidnapped. And, yeah, her turnarounds were both interesting. But, yeah, she was pretty unfleshed out character. Mm -hmm. But it was a movie with a series of unfleshed out characters. No one really has a character. They're all very reactive. So I didn't really judge her too harshly for that. She stunk. I never believed that she turned because you could tell because she walked into the church where they're having the rebel meeting and she's like, there's nothing going on at the television studio. Wink, wink. (laughs) (laughs) And then they all start shooting. Everyone around her gets shot, but she doesn't. And then when she escapes, it's just a shot of her looking like looking for something looking for something and then running off i'm like what is she looking for where is she going and then she's at the building later yeah like completely changed ready for work like in the middle of the night and it's like mm, nope don't buy it and she hangs out with skeletor exactly and i like how they just very quietly dispatch of keith david no she just kills him and he's gone i do like that I liked her slightly better than let's just replace her with a robot lady in Halloween 3. That's true, yeah. Mm. I like that they got rid of Keith David so quickly like a Band-Aid because I don't think I could have stood to actually watch him die. An off-screen death. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That added to the whole sense of sacrifice in the end. Mm Mm-hmm. Roddy, you know, given his lack of acting experience, I thought he did a fantastic job. Yeah. Yeah, he absolutely. Did. He sells so much emotion. You know, sometimes it is a little handy. I only but. knew that he was a wrestler because Alex told me he was. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have known he wasn't just an actor. I loved him as a wrestler, ridiculous too. ridiculous amount of muscles. <laughs> and he was always interesting because this was already the era when, like, Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage and Warrior were already, like, just so huge and massive and righted up. I mean, he's a pretty beefy guy, but he has that kind of old school barrel chested beefiness to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like an old strong man. Yeah, I didn't yeah. really see it coming. He like took his shirt off on the construction site. I'm like, who's that guy? Why do we keep following this guy with his shirt off? Who is this crazy muscle man? I'm like, oh, that's that's the main character. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when he's got his shirt on, you don't realize he's like four feet wide. Yeah. <laughs> he's just this big Big guy. He was just kind of old school back in his wrestling days. If I remember right, he and Carpenter met during WrestleMania 3 mm-hmm. or something like that. I mean, he was already quite famous as a wrestler at this point in his career. And I believe his first phase of his career ended a little bit after this. And then he had kind of a resurgence in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I don't know my wrestling very well, but uh, that's what I remember. <laughs> I should ask my dad. That was his era. So, um, 
George Buck Flower. Yeah, George Buck Flower, who played every bum in the 1980s. Grisly old crusty guy. Every bum. He was the bum in Back to the Future. He was like an old crusty guy in Starman. He was a bum in The Fog. He was a bum in Escape from New York. He was a bum in Village of the Dan. And here, they open by playing on, it's the bum playing the bum role, and then he comes out in the end. And I love it! In a tuxedo, in the whole room full of rich people as he sold out, and he's the one who's telling telling us what this entire operation is. Yeah, that's Andromeda. That's where they teleport over, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love him so much in this. It, it's like, oh, yay, my favorite bum has gotten cleaned up for a little while. He gets something else to do. I love it. And we'll see so much more of him, Julia and Alex, because he's one of John Carpenter's favorite character actors and will pop up in like every other film. Nice. Yeah, it's true. Peter Jason has been in a bunch. Well, yeah, Prince of Darkness was his first, and he's going to be in every other one from this point on. But yeah, uh, Peter Jason, who played Gilbert, the revolutionary dude, he was also in pretty much everything in the 1980s. He was also in Alien Nation. He's the meatloaf-looking guy. He was in 12 Walter Hill movies. Yeah. Yeah, he's one of Walter Hill's guys, and he debuted in a Howard Hawks movie. He was in Real Lobo. That was his first film role. Really? That far back? Well, that's right. That was one of his last, Hawks' last, wasn't it? Yeah. So, Alex and Julia, anything else you guys want to bring up? The fight scene reminded me of trying to get your friend to watch a show you like. Oh, that's about right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Put on the sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, you said it was like trying to convince people to watch Buffy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still haven't watched Beyond Season 2. That's really sad. That's when it gets good. You know, this actually reminds me of when was on Twitter badgering me to watch Buffy. Like, I will watch it when I watch it. That's the thing. Now we have to fight. (laughs) And it ended with him, like, taking a wooden log to a window and being like, I didn't mean to do that, man. Yeah, I love that he saw that that was too far. And he's just like, oh, okay, this has gotten out of hand. I may have crossed the line. I'm sorry. They both put their weapons down. (laughs) And I love when he grabs the bottle, smashes it, and it shatters the entire bottle and cuts his hand. And he just laughs at it. <laughs> <laughs> and he throws the entire bottle away. His entire movie was like ad libs and bloopers. <laughs> and good God, do I love it so. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's completely effective because it's just so off. Just a little bit off where you're just like, I don't know where this movie's going because it's super linear and it's not that deep. It just comes at everything from such a weird angle that I'm just completely invested through the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love it so much. Why don't we just go ahead and do the final thoughts? Those pretty okay. much your final thoughts there, Alex? I'd like to add that in the beginning, I was trying to like soft sell the movie just to like add that I fell in love with it afterwards, but I was pretty much into it from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed this movie. It's, it isn't as good as the dream team of Carpenter and Russell, but it is still pretty damn close. Though that actually makes me think of what would Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China had been like had it been Roddy Roddy Piper. Especially Big Trouble in Little China. That's true. I could see it. I still like Kurt Russell better. Oh, yeah. That is the power of Kurt Russell. Yeah, Kurt Russell always wins. But I could definitely like, you know, I wouldn't be that upset if I lived in this parallel world that you're describing. Now, Rowdy Roddy Piper as Elvis. That would be perfect. More mayonnaise, mama. (laughs) I could. Yeah. And then he'd poke her in the (laughs) eyes because that's what Rowdy Roddy Piper did. He poked people in the eyes. That was his move. (laughs) It's effective. It is. Gets the job done. So, Julia, what are your final thoughts on the movie? 
I didn't nitpick because it lives in my heart now, but there was a lot of problems with this <laughs> movie as far yeah. as uh, logic, general timeline stuff, character <laughs> motivation. There was a lot of holes, but it was kind of like a crocheted blanket. Just because it's full of holes doesn't mean it won't keep you warm and doesn't mean oh. that you don't love it. It's true. Aww. Very good. Very good. Beautifully I put. <laughs> I highly, highly recommend it. It made me very, very happy. I'm glad. Nice. <laughs> Uh, Rowdy Roddy oh, Piper so and Keith David do kind of switch motivations a couple times in the beginning where one of them is like, I'm trying to keep my head down. And one of them's like, ah, come on. And then the other guy's like, I'm trying to keep my head down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, God, now I'm just picturing Rowdy Roddy Piper crocheting a blanket. There's nothing wrong with that image. Yeah. No, 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 there to isn't. It. In his kilt. Nothing wrong. <laughs> In his kilt. Crocheted kilt. <laughs> Melissa, final thoughts on the movie? Well, um, did anybody notice that the Ghostbusters PKE meter shows up? Yes. Oh my no, god. No, I didn't notice that at all. <laughs> I love seeing recurring props show up in different movies. That wasn't even a universal movie. Yeah, I know. It's like somebody had this sitting around, it's like, hey, let's use this. We have the PKE meter, let's use it. You see it all the time with that Star Trek prop with the rotating fluorescent neon bulb things. I actually know the guy who made that. Mm. But yeah, the PKE meter shows up here and there. It's like, hey, Ghostbusters. It's awesome. <laughs> nice. All right. And again, this movie was just a big surprise for me because my memory has always been that post Betrayal of China, it's a downslope for his career. And we saw that a little bit with Prince of Darkness because it was a little unfocused. Mm -hmm. a little muddled. Mm -hmm. But boy, did this just kind of bring us right back up that slope again. I was holding out for this one. I had a feeling it would happen and uh, I'm glad that it did. I'm glad I wasn't wrong. I mean, I don't know that I'd hold this up as one of his best, but it is definitely in the top half of his career. And it just feels like his heart is in this movie. He has a lot he wants to say in this movie. A lot that he wants to do. Mm -hmm. It's got a joie de vivre about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The score, I thought, was another good one that he did with Alan Howarth. It had that very Alan Howarth rhythm to it. Only problem with the score is I wish they had actually just brought in a real saxophone and harmonica instead of the synth stuff. Yeah. yeah. Budget score. But it was still, it was a good moody atmospheric John Carpenter score. Yep. Urban Western. I love the budget score. Have you ever looked at the price of harmonica? <laughs> <laughs> You have to go to a fair to get that. Yeah. Well, hey, they got Roddy Piper a harmonica at one point in the movie. They could have just kept using that harmonica. That is very true. true. That is very true. <laughs> oh, you know what? We never talked about the makeup of the aliens. Oh, yeah. Uh, their mouths are funny, but it's effective. I mean, it looks like a rubber mask, but it is effective. Yeah. Also, the same guy played every single alien, male and female. The stunt coordinator or something like that who played them all. He did a bunch of them. There were, there were a few women. Mm-hmm. And yes, he even got to play the last one. What's wrong, baby? What's wrong, baby? <laughs> I just love how as morose as the film is and how much it goes on on sacrifice and all that stuff. That final montage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that final two shots of that montage are just so wonderfully 80s. It's very cheeky. Yeah. <laughs> and I love all the commercials in this movie. They're all yeah. pretty pitch perfect for the 80s. Last thing I will say is I work in a library, a university library, and we get to process all these books. And I got one in for the Encyclopedia of Film Composers, and I looked up Carpenter as well. Hasn't done that many, but he did get a prominent listing in it. Very good. Anyways, good night, everybody. Have a good night, Alex. Good night. You as well. All right, we're going to talk about the short story, right, Noel? Yes, we're going to talk about the short story. Did you awesome. enjoy reading the short story? I did. I did. Dear listeners, it's a short read. You should read it, too. It was written by Ray Nelson in 1963. 
He's also the guy who wrote Blake's Progress, if you're familiar with that. I am not. Yeah, he also spent some time in his life smuggling Henry Miller books out of France with Michael Moorcock. Okay. (laughs) He had a very interesting life. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, he is the inventor of the propeller beanie hat. I figure anyone who is friends with and co-writes a book with Philip K. Dick is going to be an interesting person. Yeah. He also used to do writing classes, apparently, and Anne Rice was one of his students. I think you were looking at the same Wikipedia page, aren't you? <laughs> well, yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> but yeah, the, the short story I really love. It's quite different from the movie in the sense that all of my favorite parts of the movie are completely the movie. Right. There is no five-minute punching scene in the four-page short story. Because it, it opened with the hypnosis thing yeah. where the guy just magically gets hypnotized and then starts seeing everything and starts getting in the headaches as he starts peeling through all the hypnosis. He ties up his girlfriend as she's wondering, like, why are you killing our neighbors? And mm-hmm. he just starts killing everyone. Then it leads to him. I love that final paragraph where it's like, and then the war began yeah. after he wakes everyone. I think it was he walks into the newsroom and just shoots a guy on air mm-hmm. and it is revealed to be an alien. Yeah. You know, the thing about him tying up the girlfriend was he tries to wake her up, but he doesn't know how to do it. So he's like slapping her and she's like, why are you doing that? And I hate you. Yeah, it got dark. Yeah, it got kind of dark and he couldn't figure out how to wake her up. But then he figured out that if he got the confidence of the aliens to waver, their hypnosis over the people around them starts to waver as well. So he finally walks into the TV station and kind of announces himself and shoots one of the aliens on air. And presumably that shakes their confidence so much that their sway over humankind breaks. Yeah. The ironic thing is, you know, at one part of the story... The eight o'clock in the morning aspect. Yeah, he gets a phone call and it's one of the aliens who hasn't realized he can see... And the phone call is, this is your controller. You will die of a heart attack at eight o'clock in the morning. And he's like, oh, um, if I don't die at eight o'clock in the morning, they will definitely know that I'm aware of them. So he kind of has to do everything overnight. That kind of makes me realize that the entirety of They Live only takes place over the course of just like a couple days. Yeah, yeah, it's whirlwind. And yeah, the short story is just over a few hours. And the short story, you know, of course, ends with the main character dying at eight o'clock in the morning of a heart attack. Which is ironic since Mr. Piper just passed away earlier this year of a heart attack. Yeah. It's weird because if it weren't for that line where it's like, and then after he did this, the war began, Mm -hmm. it could be one of those stories that leaves you questioning, is this really happening or are we witnessing a guy having a mental breakdown and violently taking it out of everyone? Right. Because it is a dark story. It is. (laughs) In terms of him just killing. He's like, he just sees an alien kills them. Mm -hmm. You know, his neighbor is an alien. Let's kill them. And there's no explanation of why the aliens are there. I mean, he searches them. Oh, no, it's to eat, to eat us. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not said outright. I mean, he searches them and he finds a little radio and he finds eating implements. And that's all he finds on all of the aliens. Oh, I thought it was when he goes over to the neighbor's apartment, he finds like bones that have been picked clean and stuff. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that aspect. So they are eating us. Delicious. To serve man. Mmm. It's a cookbook. <laughs> yeah, no, but the story is, I could see how this could build off in like very different movies. Mm-hmm. And it's very fascinating that Carpenter basically was like, let's just take the bare bones of that, graft it to a Western. Mm-hmm. You know, the man with no name wanders into town, grafted onto a lot of what I'm feeling about the current political climate in the 80s. Yeah, the original story has nothing to say about politics. He made this story his own. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even just the shades. <laughs> the whole visual of the shades. 
and the whole bromance factor Mm -hmm. and yeah, all the things I really love about They Live, it's all this movie. It's not from the short story. It's almost all Carpenter. Yeah. I mean, I'd almost say that there's a lot of elements that harken back to Halloween 3, mm-hmm. as did Black Moon Rising. You know, the whole anti-corporate culture, the average man on the street fighting against that. We always see that in Carpenter, he redoes like the whole Assault on Precinct 13 plotline, but it's interesting seeing these other themes that he keeps re-exploring and redeveloping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed the story, and it's a great contrast to, again, show John Carpenter as a storyteller with what he's done with it. Yeah, fascinating. So I should point out that it wasn't going to be a remake, but there was going to be a new movie based on 8 o'clock in the morning. In 2011, producer Eric Newman, who at the time was working on the Thing prequel movie. Oh my. Was also bandying around with Universal. What other properties do we have that we can tap into? Because he had also done the Dawn of the Dead, the Zack Snyder one. He got the rights to do a fresh adaptation of 8 o'clock in the morning. D.B. Weiss, who is the co-head writer of Game of Thrones, wrote a script for it. And Matt Reeves. It was going to be his next film after Cloverfield and Let Me In. Interesting. He was all set to do it. Then came a trailer for a film called Branded. Ah. And the trailer is, you know, a guy can suddenly see things, these kind of alien creatures that tie into advertising and company slogans. There's this whole conspiracy theory to drive and twist humanity and all that stuff. The trailer looked like a remake of They Live to the point where they canceled the remake. Wow. Because they were like, well, there we go. Someone beat us to the punch. And in fact, they were even thinking of suing. Then the movie came out. The movie has Jack all to do (laughs) (laughs) to the point where the trailer had been cut in a way where it does not even represent what the film is. Oh, wow. The film, which I know I talked to you about in the past because I watched it on Netflix. Isn't that the one with Jeffrey Tambor? Yep. Okay. The film is very much a Southland Tales type thing where it's meant to be a comedy by someone who has no idea how to make a comedy. So it's just this weird kind of drifty. All the stereotypes that someone has in terms of like foreign indie movies, in terms of their pretension and navel gazing, is this movie. Oh. Because it is a film made by two ad executives about an ad executive who starts to feel bad about how his advertisements have driven culture in the way that they have. And it becomes this weird, dark comedy about how after a contestant on like one of those, you know, where we're going to go in and give someone massive plastic surgery to make them look better shows, dies on the operating table. The fast food companies then pounce on that and start shifting all of advertising to feature fat people in ads to make it look like fat people is the new beautiful so people will eat more hamburgers. Wow. And this guy is key in that. And it gets to the point where he realizes that heart attack rates and childhood obesity have gone up, that he just quits and he leaves and he goes to a farm where he's found five years later by his girlfriend, who's played by Lily Sobieski. He decides to come back and fight advertising by getting into the trenches of it. And before he leaves his farm, he sacrifices his prize cow. And then that gives him the ability to see where he literally sees personifications of company slogans and branding. And he sets it upon himself to set all of the brands against one another so that they will tear themselves down. So it's like we're literally seeing like all these company brands in the form of monsters just tearing at each other in the skies. Oh, my God. And it's so bad. (laughs) 
mean, it's fascinating ideas. I love some yeah. of the ideas in it, but it has the Southland Tales problem of it is just so wallowing in its own pretensions that it just is so uninteresting. It's like taking these really interesting things and doing so little with them and just focusing on how depressed this guy is at being successful. And it's not a good movie, but it's fascinatingly bad. <laughs> And it's just fascinating that this thing came along, killed the They Live remake, and then we never heard about it again. Because I remember when the trailer came out, everyone was like, oh my god, it looks just like They Live. And then suddenly you just never heard about it again. Yeah, it's nothing like it. (laughs) No, and it wasn't until like a month ago. Because I was prepping for this episode, and I'm like, hey, remember that trailer? Hey, it's on Netflix. I'll watch it. Holy crap, this is not what I thought it was going to (laughs) be. And yeah, and Jeffrey Tambor is his mentor figure in the ad company, and he's the father of Lily Sobieski, who disapproves of the fact that they're in a relationship. Wow. Have you ever seen Mr. Bean's Holiday? I have not seen that one. I've seen the Mr. Bean TV show. Okay. Mr. Bean's Holiday has a character played by Willem Dafoe. Oh, good God. Who is a parody of pretentious independent filmmakers, because the entire story leads us to Khan, where this guy's debuting his new film. Oh, my God. And it is like a Tommy Wiseau movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> we have a scene where we see his movie and it's like five minutes of him riding up an escalator to his own wispy voiceover. <laughs> that is what Brandon is like. <laughs> it's like Southland Tales. There's so much bizarre stuff going on that I should love this, but it's presented in such a drab way that it's just not resonating. And it is so not They Live. Right. And it killed the They Live remake we could have gotten (laughs) from Matt Reeves. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, hopefully at some point, maybe they'll resurrect the project. I mean, that almost never happens. When something's killed in Hollywood, they've moved on to something else. Because they have the uh, attention span of a ferret on speed. Look at how on again, off again, the Escape from New York remake has been over the last 10 years. Well, yeah. Or, you know, the ever-resurrected Mountains of Madness film that Mm -hmm. Del Toro wants to make. I think probably also what killed it was the thing prequel came out. And Universal was like, maybe we don't want to make this with you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But Matt Reeves, you know. That would have been interesting. Yeah. Imagine if you had done They Live as a found footage movie. Could it have worked? Mm, Maybe. I don't know. I think we're kind of done with found footage movies, thankfully. It was a good idea at the time, but then it was overused and not used properly. And it just became an excuse for shitty camera work. Yeah. But I mean, like going back to eight o'clock in the morning, Mm -hmm. it is such a brisk story that there is so much you can do with that. So many directions you could go. Oh, absolutely. It's a great concept. And we're kind of at the same crossroads that we were at in the late 80s right now with the kind of suffering economy and where it was consumerism in the late 80s. Now we've got this weird layer of social media over it and kind of Mm -hmm. this insidious marriage of advertising with how we interact with people online. And we're probably ripe for that sort of thing. I could actually see that where it's like even just a character like John Nada in the 80s one where he's someone who's just completely off the grid. Mm -hmm. He's unconnected. Mm -hmm. He's not on social media or anything like that. I could see him playing with that of how he's the outsider who can see these things that other people can't because they're so entrenched in the web. Mm -hmm. The web of signals and information and all that stuff. I could see his story being built around that. Yeah. The internet is itself the alien. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 
Oh, I see what you're getting at. That would be interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's not external aliens. It's an alien that we have produced ourselves. Is it? Or did it just come down here and gradually grow over time? Mm, maybe. It's like a big parasitic organism. <laughs> it's all connected. This is a story I'd love to see. I mean, you'll you'll never get one that's like this, mm-hmm. but I would love to see someone just play with the concept. Oh, yeah. I mean, you'll never have another They Live because, you know, mm-hmm. like we were saying earlier, it's such a product of its time. And it's so Carpenter, too. Yeah, it's very wrapped up in the very precise moment of when it was produced and when it mm-hmm. came out. At least it's universal to the point that we can still look back on it and go, yeah, I can still understand where they were coming from. And a lot of it still applies today. Because, you know, there's talk about remaking Big Trouble in the Child stuff. Did you see the, there was a great quote from an interview that just came out with Carpenter, where someone asked him about all these remakes and how do you feel this is ruining your work? And he had this great quote of like, who gives a shit? Who gives a shit? There's nothing wrong with that. Let them. You know, if they don't want to watch it, they can watch mine. Who cares? Well, how many times did he remake Real Bravo? Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that we have so many fanboys who are so protective of his work, whereas the original creator's like, who gives a shit? I mean, at this point in time, I mean, you can make a remake, but it's definitely not going to replace the original work. No, but it could be an interesting thing that stands alongside it. Absolutely. I mean, I still think it's nowhere near as good of a movie, but I still really like the Assault on Precinct 13 remake because it is a very different take on that concept. Have you ever seen the French one? I have not yet. Nest of Wasps. It's really quite good. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up the episode? No, I think I'm done. Thank you again for joining us, Melissa. Oh, and thank you, Noel. It's been a pleasure once again. And did you want to give a quick plug to the sites where people can find you? Oh, I can. I do podcasting at Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome, which you can find at xanaducinema.com. I am also on Real Education, you know, where we go through the classics of cinema, both old and new. With a newbie. With a newbie who has never seen the movies before. That is at real, R-E-E-L-E-D-U.com. And that has a sister website that I'm also on, Real Education Noir, which is the same thing with Films Noir. And that is at Real Education Noir, that is R-E-E-L-E-D-U-N-O-Y-R.com. And they are all wonderful shows. Thank you. Thank you. If we want to just take a little bit of time, just to kind of look back at the 80s, just kind of run through the list of them and just any thoughts that come to mind looking back on them. Masters of Carpentry, summarize the 80s. Yes. Uh, It was a great year. It was a great decade. It was a great uh, 10 of years. (laughs) This was the peak of Carpenter. Yeah, it was the peak of Carpenter stylistically, if not financially successful. I don't know if his peak came in um, Halloween. This is when he made his biggest studio movies. Yeah, that's true. But were they as boffo business as Halloween? Yeah, but he didn't see any of that money. No. I mean, it had the thing. We had the thing. We had They Live classics. Yeah, let's let's go to start with The Fog. I remember, I think I was a soft recommend. I still kind of like it. (laughs) Pirates in a fog. Come on, guys. I like to party. Nah, still lame. We're still lame. (laughs) Takes one to know one. It's true. I enjoy the characters. I enjoy the atmosphere. But boy, the story. There was no story. There was no story. Yeah, that's true. There was no story. There was a setup for a story, but then nothing actually really happened. And yet people died. That's true. You know, that's a film that could have used Father Loomis. That's true, yeah. There's goddamn pirates everywhere. They're in the fog. Pulls out an axe. (laughs) So then we got Escape from New York. It's Escape from New York, man. It's a timeless classic, no matter how I approached it in a more critical light. It still has kind of a nihilistic feel to it that doesn't work for me as much in my dotage. But it's Escape from New York. 
that is what it is. Yeah, I know. I'm still down with this kid from New York. It had a lot of problems, but again, charming enough to overcome them. Yeah. yeah we're finally getting near revisiting Escape from L.A., which I have not seen since it was in theaters. Me Nor too. have I. Well, I haven't seen it since it was released on VHS and available at my local video store. <laughs> I haven't seen it since theaters. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. A slick, exciting movie. Story-wise, doesn't entirely hold together. I actually really like the nihilism, but man, did him and Kurt Russell make a statement. Yeah, for sure. Because that was their first post-Elvis movie together. Very compact, very merciless little uh, sci-fi thriller. Mm -hmm. Emulated to this day. Yeah. And then we had Halloween 2, the one in the hospital. No, thank you. (laughs) That was terrible. Yeah. I still think it's one of the better sequels, but that doesn't make it great. Yeah. It doesn't work for me as much anymore, but it's still like compared to a lot of the other Halloween sequels. I mean, talk about a languid pace. Yeah, absolutely. How long they spent in that hospital, that empty, empty, dark hospital. Yeah, that hospital was too dark. I will say it spawned the vinyl soundtrack that they released for Halloween 2 has an amazing cover, and you guys should all check it out. Yeah, but I think that was when Alan Howard started doing the scores, and it didn't come out very well. Well, yeah, I don't know about the music, but... What did uh, the cover look like? It's like a crazy painting of Michael Myers with a nurse's hat on. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. When was that in the movie? Uh, I don't think it was. I think this is just like a special edition vinyl pressing. I'll, I'll link it to you. So then we had The Thing. Masterpiece. Timeless masterpiece. Untouchable in its beauty. Yeah, man, still scary. Cold, simple, beautiful as the driven snow. Absolute classic. I think, honestly, among my favorite Carpenter films, I can't pick which one is my favorite. I just have like a grouping of my favorites. And this is definitely among that grouping. I have a top four so far. <laughs> See, I got Assault, I got Starman, I got Big Trouble, I got... Yeah, I think this and Big Trouble, this and Big Trouble are probably my top two. Those are my top two as well. And they're so diametrically opposite one another, yet both so skillful. I would say that I am so enamored with the last film of the 80s now that it is rising in the ranks at a steady yeah. rate. I cannot stop thinking about it. That's one that now that I've seen it again, and we'll get to that, it's like, I want to watch that a few more times here. See if it'll yeah. definitely rise up there too. That is a film I could watch multiple times. But yeah, The Thing, just one of the most iconic sci-fi monster movies ever made, just so brilliantly. Absolutely. And then Alex, you and I had Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. After going through the other Halloweens, uh, it's risen in my estimation. I'm going to call him Tom Decker, but it's not. It's... Tom Atkins. Tom Mustache, <laughs> skulking about in alleyways. Ducking and weaving, ducking and weaving. Exactly. I enjoy that it tried to do something different. Yes. I cannot fault it for that. It's sort of like the cloud atlas of Halloween <laughs> films. I appreciate its ambition. It is an incredible collection of ideas. Yes. It would have been great had they made an incredible movie. It's true. Next one is Christine. It wasn't my cup of tea. I don't hate it by any stretch of the imagination. It has its moments and stuff like that, but it could have just been more King than Carpenter, I would have liked. Mm. Or maybe less King, more Carpenter. (laughs) I can't tell, but the balance was off. It's that odd middle ground between the two. Yeah, the mix was just not right enough for me. It's not a dislike, but I will say I had not thought of it again until you brought it up again. (laughs) Yeah. It just left my mind. (laughs) Yeah, the proof is in the pudding. The main thing that I remember about Christine is how much I disliked the main character. And that still stuck in my head. He was a shitter. Slimy little shit. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to give that a pass. (laughs) (laughs) Christine is still one of my favorites. I actually kind of like that odd middle ground mix it has. But it is very... Carpenter and King are such wildly different storytellers. Yeah. And it is odd seeing a fusion of the two. 
King is like a dude telling you a story in a part, and Carpenter is like the master of efficiency. Yeah. I don't know. I still just really like it because I also just really like the approach they took to it that was different than the book. Mm -hmm. And again, I didn't read the book, so I'm all at a loss for that appreciation. And the whole striptease sequence of show me as the car rebuilds itself. I did like that. The saxophone. Oh, yeah, that was great. That was sultry. It made me feel things I was not prepared to feel. Feel things for a bent fender. Then the next one was Starman. Yeah, I'm the odd man out of Starman. And again, like, none of these movies I really dislike. There's nothing that I'm just like, oh, that, what a stinker. Like, I did like Starman, but I just feel that Starman visited me too late in life. I think if I had had that sort of connection to him in the past, I don't know what didn't do it for me. Maybe I'll rewatch it. Maybe it was just because I was going to move and I was, like, all stressed out and I wasn't ready to receive the Starman. What was Starman about again? The Man from the Stars. Oh, yeah. Jeff Bridges, Road Trip, Alien. My brain cells are being used for other things right now. I'm trying my best. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly have forgotten what Starman is. What is that? Starman's the guy who, um, he's the alien. Jeff Bridges is the alien who, like, wears the body of the dead husband. You liked it. You liked it. Yeah, I did like that one. It had that cool, like, 80s vibe to it. The synth scores, the choral synth scores, I think we all enjoyed. Yeah. I mean, it was like a blue baby, and then he had sex with that lady. You did not like that. I did not like that. In the train, yeah. Um, All these memories lost for tears (laughs) and rain. There they are. (laughs) Just oceans of time we have crossed. Um... I remember being, yeah, all right, all right. That is one of, I think, John Carpenter's best movies. I, I mean, it's not The Thing or Big Trouble, but... The Academy Awards agree with you. I think it's probably his most mainstream movie. I would agree. It's the one that people who don't even know John Carpenter know that movie. I was also wondering about Memoirs of an Invisible Man, because I remember the being posters everywhere for that, so I felt that was kind of like a mainstream. Well, we'll find out in a couple months. It's true. I just threw that book into a lake. <laughs> I will relate that incident. <laughs> <Get there. laughs> I should also just side note on Starman, as of this recording, we are seven episodes into covering every episode of the TV series at my blog, the Super Saiyan Shortly Showcase. Nice. Just posted a link to the first five write-ups. It's actually a really damn good series. It's a really good continuation. Picks up 15 years later, comes back, meets his teenage son as they go try to find the mom. Government's still after him. And it stars, instead of Jeff Bridges, you get Robert Hayes, the star of Airplane. Oh, nice. Who's actually really good. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) It's a really damn good series. And the teenage son is played by the guy who voiced Spider-Man in the 90s animated series. Interesting. So yeah, no, definitely uh, pop by the blog, masterscarpentry.blogspot.com. We'll link to those posts. Check them out. Follow along as we keep going through. So then we get to, uh, (laughs) I think this is one that none of us are going to have much good to say about, Black Moon Rising. Best movie of life. (laughs) It is about a trepid adventures of a man with a unibrow driving a lady's shaver. (laughs) And, uh... Jumping out a window at one point, I think. Again, a film that should have been a lot cooler than it ultimately is. If it just had that Carpenter style, it would have been so much better. And it's one of the few ones that Carpenter didn't direct that is trying its damnedest to imitate the Carpenter style, but not quite working. Yeah. If it just had, like, the feel of that music video that they released, which I don't even think Carpenter directed for Night for his album, no, yeah. that would have been better. But now it's just dull. Dull, dull, dull. I don't hate the movie, but boy, do I not recommend it. I think I might have recommended it during the episode, but I don't now. It was a fascinating journey just reading Carpenter's original script and then seeing it, but yeah, it's not worth it in the end. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this was one that neither of you were on for. I don't know if you've even listened to the episode Philadelphia Experiment. I did listen to the episode. 
I still think it's a clumsy movie. The most interesting thing about it is seeing it as basically a first draft of Starman. Right, yeah. It's got some horrifying elements of it. I remember you saying, I can't remember if they glossed over it or not, but the people stuck in the metal. Yeah, like people melted into decks and stuff like that. Yeah, 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 I remember that. It's a very clumsy movie. It's not terrible. It's one of those kind of like if you catch it on WGN on a Sunday afternoon type of movie. Is this that one with Matthew Broderick in it? No. With like the five-leaf clovers? No. And uh, John Lithgow? This is the Philadelphia Experiment, the old conspiracy theory from the 40s. With the people who are like phased into metal. (laughs) Yeah. It's basically like Starman, but instead of an alien from outer space, it's a sailor who's been zapped from the 1940s to the 1980s. Because they tried to do an experiment to go invisible, and then he just kind of like went interdimensionally. Yeah. But he gets shot through time. But it's then him meeting a woman, and they go on a road trip while being chased by the government. Yeah. Carpenter worked on it before he left it, but he had worked on the script. But then when he did Starman, it's like Starman has so many of the same elements but done better. I only know the plot through the podcast. <laughs> I only listen to the episode. Julia, that's one you weren't on. You might enjoy it. Doesn't sound like I'm going to enjoy it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Not the movie, but the episode. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> But that is a disappointment that it's not the Matthew Broderick one, because I like that movie. (laughs) And then then we get to Big Trouble in Little China. I love Big Trouble in Little China. Working through the mystic night. (laughs) (laughs) I think that is the peak of Carpenter. That is the absolute high point of his career. The true test of artistic genius is when you're throwing out your craziest ideas and they're working. And they stick. Yeah, and that's Big Trouble in Little China to a T. That is a movie that should not work. It should not work at all. And my God, does it. No, but it does. And it's a masterpiece in my mind. Yeah. I'm just going to go say it there. And yeah, I thought it was his only masterpiece in the vein, but then we'll get to another movie shortly. Okay, here's the thing. Lay it on us. We can take it. Big Trouble in Little China. I will be forever grateful for He's perfect in every way. <laughs> <laughs> but I will be forever grateful for it. Because it was the first time that I can remember anyways watching a movie. I've already seen it like how many times? Like three or four times? Uh, we've watched it so many times now. Because Alex loves it so much. So I'm like, all right, I'll watch that. <laughs> never did anything for me. Didn't get it. Like, it never made me upset or angry or bored or anything. Mm-hmm. It was just one of those just things not where your it was thing. just like, just not your thing, just, it wasn't my thing. I didn't get it. And then when we watched it for the podcast, I don't remember if I had talked about it or not. I think I did. But I basically was able to appreciate, enjoy, and love a movie based solely on the fact that the person I loved loved it. And to be able to watch it through his eyes was fantastic. <laughs> I blush her. but it was it was like watching a movie in a whole new way to watch it like through your eyes in the way that you enjoy it gave me so much joy because i love you so much (laughs) that it was like now big trouble in china will always be up there as one of the best even though the movie itself don't really care for it (laughs) but what it did for me the experience yeah it was an experience which was of course a plus and that is wonderful. It, moments like that are what has been such a joy doing this show with the two of you. <laughs> that bond between you two. Yeah, I like them. Because <laughs> I so love that on Two Idiots in Love. Which will return one day <laughs> in the year 2525. Oh, it's going to be a good year. One, one to nine, nine, nine. Oh, you two. So then, Alex, we had Halloween 4. Uh, <laughs> compared to Halloween 5, a sterling gold masterpiece. Yeah, we'll go ahead and say Halloween 5, too. Halloween 4 is, 
it's a mess, but it's at least kind of watchable. Has a few nice ideas. Its heart is in the right place. It feels like a movie. <laughs> so it was something they literally just slapped together in a week or two. Yeah. And Halloween 5 is what the fuck happened with that? What a turkey. I think that is the first complete train wreck we've covered in this entire project. Yeah, it's pretty rough going. <laughs> that was awful. Yeah, it was what not was fun. The I don't know. <laughs> I watched it twice, too. Hey, you know what? You weren't on that episode. You can listen to it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, I don't think I cared. You can listen to two sad men yeah. talking about this movie. And that was her second recording of it because we lost the first. Yeah. That was a sad, sad night. It was. So then we had Prince of Darkness. I uh, have much stronger happy feelings for Prince of Darkness because of Julia's enthusiasm for it. We discussed it over cups of tea, and I like it a lot more now. So I'm going with a soft recommend. You guys know I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down with the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> Genuinely terrifying. Yeah. If I caught that late night on cable one night, I would have been like, what the fuck is this movie? No, it's still scary. Like, I think about it. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, when you're like, you have a quiet minute, maybe you're in the shower. Yeah. Maybe you're making a sandwich. I don't know. David Lynch movies, I like, even though the plots make no sense most of the time. I like them because they're like mood paintings. Because Carpenter is so, like, efficient, and I understand where everyone is coming from in his movies all the time, which is why I love him as a director. He's in my top two favorite directors, him and Hitchcock, because I understand the motivations of his characters. Mm. If I was to approach Prince of Darkness the same way I approach Mulholland Drive, it goes up in my estimation. Okay. The parts work. The mode works. There is a consistency to it, if not a logic. <laughs> I'll agree with that, too. Is Ever since we've posted the episode, I've discussed the film with some other people, too. And I still have my issues with them. Mm -hmm. Those issues just aren't as overwhelming as, as they... I mean, well, I shouldn't say overwhelming because I still recommended it. They just aren't as strong as they were. Because mm -hmm. it is such an experience of a movie. Yeah. Even though all the ideas don't come together for me... I really, really like the ideas, and enough of them come together for me. And uh, hindsight with the rose-colored glasses, I usually only remember the good scenes anyways and forget the bad scenes. So <laughs> I'm just like, oh, that was cool. Oh, that was cool. Yeah. Like the guy um, escaping through the wall with the overhead shot of everyone bursting at the same time, mm -hmm. and you're like, get out of there! And then our final film, They Live. It was the first Carpenter film to invoke strong feels out of me. Like, I get joy feelings and fear from The Thing and joy from Big Trouble in Little China, but I was genuinely moved by some of the motivations of the characters in this movie. The humanity dealing with a complete lack of humanity. <laughs> it felt like a very personal film. Mm -hmm. Like, it meant something more to Carpenter than some of his other movies. Uh, that's my top movie of the 80s. I'm not sure about all time, but it could be top three for sure. Definitely, definitely fantastic. Loved it. Loved it! <laughs> and that's one of those ones that I think it has the potential to become one of my favorites. My other ones I've seen over and over and over again, like Thing and Big Trouble in China. This is a film that I now want to watch a lot more than I have in the last 15 years. And just see how I feel about it after watching it another 15 times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, I would God. totally rewatch that a bunch of times. I am definitely dedicated to watching it another 15 times. I'm totally going to buy the Blu-ray. <laughs> I think following this project, I am definitely going to have a handful of Carpenter films that are going to become an annual thing. Yeah, I could just throw that on if I'm like sick on the couch or something. I'm like, I'm going to watch They Live. And I should mention that as of this recording, we have exactly a year and a half left of this show. 
in terms of episodes. The final countdown. So, and I, I don't think we're going to do a recap of the 90s because the 2000s only have like four movies. So we'll just do an overall recap at the end. But yeah, we are over halfway through the project. We've been doing this for, how long have we been doing this? September 2013. So we've been doing this for over two years now. Wow. And we have a year and a half left. My hair is so gray. <laughs> the end is in sight. It is approaching. <laughs> I know we've got we got plenty of fun episodes left. I still haven't figured out what to do with all the spinoff things. But our main series, we're going to have Kevin back. We're going to have Melissa back. We're going to have some other fun guests coming up. I think it's going to be a fun year and a half bringing this to an end. <laughs> Even though we've hit the high point, hopefully our show hasn't. Oh, there's a couple movies I'm dying to discuss. You want to hear something funny? What? I saw Ghosts of Mars and Vampires in the theater opening day. I did not know either of them were directed by John Carpenter for years. Wow. I went and saw the San Diego Comic-Con panel for Ghosts of Mars, where they had Joanna Cassidy and Big Daddy Mars, the main villain of the movie, in costume, both trying to appease the audience for 40 minutes because the Sam Raimi panel before had run 20 minutes over, and John was stuck in traffic. Uh... And didn't get there till almost near the end. That's the one and only time I've been in a room with John Carpenter. Yeah, I didn't even go. He came to Toronto when I was there, but I just did not have the money to spend, unfortunately. Well, hopefully we'll see what the tours are for his album. Oh, yeah. If he comes to Vancouver, we'll see. Anyways, I think that'll bring us to a close for the night. Yep. This has been another episode of Masters of Carpentry. Thank you very much for listening, everybody, and we will see you next time. Sleep. 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 Masters of Carpentry can be found at mastersofcarpentry.blogspot.com and is in no way affiliated with John Carpenter or the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. Our theme music is Black Rainbow by Jack Locke. To hear more, please visit jacklocke.com. That's J-A-K-L-O-C-K-E dot com. There was a film called No Contest starring Roddy Piper and Andrew Dice Clay. Oh, God. Where the two of them are terrorists who take over a Miss America-style beauty pageant. Oh, my God, no. Where one of the contestants is a female Navy SEAL. So it becomes a full-on die-hard in a beauty pageant scenario. I need this. I need this in my life. A uh, secondary digression. I just saw one of the last things Roddy Piper ever made. It's a short film called Portal to Hell, and it played at Fantastic Fest a couple weeks ago. It's about a 20-minute, 15-minute, 20-minute short film. He plays a cranky old building superintendent of a rundown apartment building. And what do you know? There are cultists in the basement. <laughs> and it is delightful. It was kickstarted, I think, last year, and it's circling the film festivals right now. So I imagine maybe in the next year or so, it'll probably wind up online for the enjoyment of all. But, you know, look out for it. It is fun. It is really fun. I should know wrestling <laughs> because Minneapolis was one of the big nexus points of wrestling for a while. Heck, my mayor was Jesse the Body Ventura for a while. Well, I mean, the current writer of DC's Scooby-Doo comic for the last few years is the head of the Minnesota Gay Wrestling League. <laughs> yeah, I love Terrence Creep. I love him so much. Yeah. <laughs> I've been to a few of his matches. He's delightful. I know, isn't he? Yeah. I love that there's a gay wrestling league. I love it. Yes. I love it. <laughs> a Minnesota gay wrestling. <laughs> a Minnesota gay wrestling league. It's pretty fantastic.
The Raid 2 is a little too long for its own good because it's absolutely overindulgent in everything that it's giving us, but wow, is it a spectacle. They have, they have a spectacle. 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 <laughs> it's a spectacle. Spectacle. Well, I know what's going in the outtakes. <laughs> I haven't yet. I'm, I'm, I'm just saving it. <laughs> Am I saving as or saving? Save. Save. All right. And now I will. You didn't stop recording. Though. I did not stop recording. <laughs> I'm a case.